It's crazy. Everything is super, super high. Gas, food, everything. A lot of people are being pushed to the brink. No end in sight. Typical American family, they're having to spend almost $500 more a month. So a lot of financial pain. From your house to County Hall. Our proposed budget includes the first property tax break in 10 years. How low can it go? How high the price? The most overpriced market in the country. Historic gun law. Overshadowed by anger and anguish. Every day it's, it's a new day that we suffer and, and we don't see a final chapter. This Parkland father wants more. The idea is to try and, to try and get the ball rolling. Monroe County State Rep. To see if there's been any improvement. Is back in the keys from the state capitol. All here, all live, this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin with a plan to cut property taxes, and as always, the devil is in the detail. Miami-Dade's mayor put that tax cut in her proposed $10 billion budget she unveiled this week. Her proposed property tax cut is small, just 1%, but it is the first time that the millage rate will have come down in Miami-Dade in a decade. The mayor also is talking about expanding financial aid for people who rent and money for homeowners who struggle to make their mortgage payments. Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava joins us now from her home in Pinecrest. Madam Mayor, great to see you. Good, Good morning. morning. Palmetto Bay, Michael, Palmetto Bay, close by. <laughs> Good. Uh, Mayor Levine Cava, here you rolled out on Friday this enormous record-setting $10 billion budget, and tucked in there was this somewhat surprising and welcome property tax cut of 1%. Doesn't really amount, it's just a few bucks, but it's meaningful. Why did you do this? Relief for people who are struggling with inflation and high food and uh, gas prices and everything else? Absolutely, Michael. We're facing an unprecedented cost of living increase. People all over our county are suffering and we need to show them that we're listening, we care, we wanna put some money back in their pocketbooks and we also wanna invest in the future. So I think it is very important that in, for the first time in 10 years, we're offering a tax cut. So Madam Mayor, that is such a great headline. And as always, if you dig beneath the headlines, the meanings might change a little bit. And I'm just gonna go on record as saying, I will never criticize any $1 back in anybody's <laughs> pocket, however, for the average homesteader, the average homeowner in Miami-Dade, your plan amounts to what is in the records that you sent to the commission, $14 savings a year. $14 a year right now isn't even a third of a tank of gas for a whole year. So I guess my question would be in the collective, if everybody pitched back in that $14 a year in the collective, couldn't that pay for so much more in the county? Yeah, yeah. so thanks, Glenna. It's an overall 25 million tax break to the residents. And uh, so it is meaningful collectively and for each individual. Uh, we hope it'll help a little and we're also investing in things that are going to really change the quality of life for so many. We have hundreds of thousands that are struggling with the high cost of rent or their mortgages, they can't afford it. And we're making a half a billion dollar investment in this budget in helping people with their housing costs. So that 
is meaningful and will be felt by so many. Yeah, we will get into those proposed, uh, uh, the help for people who are really struggling to pay their rent to make their own mortgages. But first, let me kind of follow up on a point that Glenna made, which is that 1% uh, in the view of at least three or four county commissioners and the county tax appraiser just isn't enough. Something meaningful would be more like three or 4%, which would mean that the average homeowner would pay roughly what they paid this year. So why don't you go up to three or 4%? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, homeowners with Homestead, you know, they're capped at 3% no matter what. So while they're struggling, we want to provide them relief, those who can't afford to pay their mortgage. At the end of the day, um, the biggest beneficiaries of a bigger tax cut are investors, people who are buying up properties, turning it around for commercial purposes. That is a very big part of it, as well as some of our new homeowners that are coming to town uh, for their uh, relocation to, to our paradise, and we welcome that. But we just know that for the typical homeowner, this will be uh, more meaningful what we're doing uh, for sure. Uh, also, I uh, want to be clear that any bigger tax cuts will mean cuts in service. People need to understand this is our police department, our parks, our roadways, our transit, all of these things that depend upon these dollars. And this is not the time to be cutting on those basic services either. Just when we're getting a handle on crime, just when we're uh, really moving forward on transit plans. So, so this is a budget that is a smart budget. It's one that gives tax relief, that recognizes uh, how people are suffering and also invest in things that will really matter to them and, and help them in the long term. So you, I, I want to, to your point, I want to go back to how the, the budget is, is sort of pieced out. And do we have the graphic of the percentages of the county budget? I'm not sure we had that graphic. And, and we do. Our producers are so on top of things. <laughs> All right. So, Mayor, I stole this right out of your budget plan. And it, it's a great little visual graphic, because we are all about the visuals, about how much of a dollar goes to the different pots in the county. And, and with this tax cut, I, I want to direct your attention to, well, not yours, but our viewers, recreation and culture, seven cents of the dollar. Most of the dollar goes to public safety, police, fire, et cetera. That's, that's sort of common. Um, but recreation and culture and neighborhoods and infrastructure, sort of the ground, the quality of life pots amounts yeah. to collectively just under a third. So with, with a savings in property tax, do you think that homeowners and property owners would wanna maybe kick back that small savings into those pots for <laughs> enhancements there? Look, the commissioners are going to debate what are the, the current needs and so on, but I do think it is meaningful to recognize for our um, struggling homeowners that uh, we wanna put something back in their pocketbooks too. Uh, we do have new revenues, not as many as it might appear on the surface because uh, a lot of that is federal dollars that are not sustainable. Those are uh, American Rescue Plan dollars that we can't depend on for the long term. So that definitely pumps up our budget and we're using those dollars for infrastructure. Look, we've invested in our parks, we've invested in our roads and in our transit. Parks have become a top priority for people since the pandemic. People recognize uh, the, the value of open spaces. We're maintaining the parks, programming in the parks. These are all critical things that our community has told us through our Thrive 305 survey and, and, and other means, our budget workshops. These are things that are important to them along with public safety. Yeah, 
you have just said, Madam Mayor, uh, today, and then you said at your news conference on Friday that uh, you do not want to reward, as it were, the real estate speculators who come in, uh, pay full price, even bid up the value of some or the price of some homes or hedge funds or investors who come in and snap up property, again, maybe at above market prices, you don't want to give them the break with this tax cut, but how do you at the same time help the average homeowner, you know, who is seeing the value of his or her home just go up uh, on the average of 12% uh, in the last year? So how do you balance those? So again, homestead uh, laws protect homeowners from those drastic increases it's capped at three percent and uh, seniors and others have even steeper um, protections uh, and we know that landlords may not be big landlords they may be small landlords that may be their primary source of revenue and we know that their costs are going up and that's why we have programs we're proposing that will help the uh, landlords uh, as well as the renters and the mortgage holders so it's a comprehensive strategy we can't just do one thing, we have to do all of it because truly we are living in the most expensive place relative to our incomes in the country right now. The Great Balancing Act. Mayor, we need to take a quick break if you would. Stay tuned, we'll be back in just a few minutes with more with Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava. Welcome back. We are in the midst of a good conversation with Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava. Uh, Madam Mayor, you have said a couple of times in the last few weeks, and the HUD director, uh, Marsha Fudge, said it as well, that Miami-Dade, for many people, is almost unlivable because they can't afford uh, the rent, they can't afford a mortgage. You said we are the epicenter of the national housing crisis. Well, your new budget has $40 million for new housing. Is that federal money? Where did you get it and how are you gonna spend it? Yeah, Michael, thank you. We are making an unprecedented investment in the housing needs of our community because we know that is our number one driver of the high cost of living here. And it's in total half a billion dollars, 500 million of that uh, we've got 40 million uh, that is coming from new property tax uh, revenue, and that is local money, so it doesn't come with any of the federal restrictions. And we also, it's 43 million, excuse me, and we also have 40 million from uh, federal sources that we're budgeting for new housing. And overall, we will have either in process or completed by 2023. Um, uh, 32,000 new units of affordable housing wow. towards uh, our estimated 100,000 need. And by when, will they, when will they come online? When will people be able to say, gee, here is a affordable right. housing unit and I want to move into it? Right. So 14,000 of them are uh, due to be done by the end of 2023. And honestly, I'm attending ribbon cuttings almost every week. So these units are going up. Uh, they are beautiful, uh, definitely desirable. Some of them are mixed income. Uh, they, they are available on the market today. And I've had the great pleasure to speak to people who are so excited to, to be moving into these, these great uh, units. The, the remainder will get started. And um, again, all in process, another uh, 
18,000 uh, in process to be started uh, uh, within the next year and a half or so. So we are making great headway. In addition to that, we've got a 75 million fund that includes private funds committed to building more units here in Miami-Dade uh, County. And uh, we're converting our public housing facilities into really beautiful campuses with multiplier effect, mixed income, market rate, with workforce. Um, it's, it's really a revolution in how we're addressing housing. So uh, we're working hard on both increasing the supply and protecting our current renters through the uh, first Tenants Bill of Rights, the first Office of Housing Advocacy, uh, and we've been helping hundreds of people through our emergency rental assistance program to pay landlords what they are owed to pay their costs and then keep people from, from being evicted. So um, it's, it's a three-prong approach. More rental assistance using local funds, more uh, homeowner assistance for mortgages that are uh, and, and utility costs that are hard to pay, and a third, a new program to subsidize landlords who have market rate to bring those units uh, to workforce or affordable uh, that we're completing um, a, a design of the program, how it will how it will be implemented. You know, Mayor, at that same event um, with the HUD secretary, you said something that I found so fascinating, and it may have something to do with all that you just spoke about. You used the word densification which kind of made me laugh at first, but, but dense is not always a flattering thing to use for a neighborhood, but densification sounds like the way of the future. What, on the ground level, what does that mean to, to a homeowner? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so we know the demand for single family homes is huge, and we have uh, identified up to over 100,000 lots that can be used to build uh, housing inside the urban development line. And this proposal, again, is really state-of-the-art, groundbreaking all across the country. They're looking at it. And it's not all high-rises. It could be duplexes or uh, townhomes. And uh, it, would, it doesn't happen overnight. It happens when uh, people are turning over the lots. They could do lot splitting. So it increases the zoning uh, capacity in certain um, lots that are really underutilized. We have significant underutilized land. And with this, we can provide for future housing needs for many years to come. Yeah, Mayor Levine, Kava, let me move to another area briefly. And that is law enforcement and the Miami-Dade County Jail system. You have just in the last few days, once again, shaken up your staff. You didn't fire anybody, but you moved people around. And now Freddie Ramirez, a really uh, outstanding guy, a great cop, a good administrator, is back running the Miami-Dade Police Department. Um, what's up with this? Why, why these personnel shifts? So everyone is looking for stability and security. We made those interim appointments while we were uh, working on issues in the jail. Things are um, settling in the, in the jail, and that is a good thing. So therefore, it was time to make some more permanent decisions. So uh, J.D. Patterson is our chief of uh, corrections and forensics with the, the jails and the medical examiner's office. And Freddie Ramirez, who was still overseeing the police department, so while he wasn't directing it day to day, he was overseeing it as chief of public safety. So now he's chief for public safety and fire. 
and we're proposing a new Office of Emergency Management that would report to him as well. So that is a significant uh, change because, you know, we have a lot of emergencies around here. So it's important that we stabilize the structure and uh, Freddie has been doing a great job overseeing those functions, as has Chief Patterson. Mayor, in the short time we have left, a quick question about something that's coming down the pike. Last, uh, last month, there was, for the second time, it seemed the fix was in to defer the question of whether to move the urban development boundary on protected lands for what is to be a South Dade warehouse logistics industrial project. Um, pretty, pretty contentious because of that line move, and you've been very strong about environmental issues, and you had forecast a veto if the commission did vote for that. They didn't get to because the developer's team got them a deferral. Um, right. Is there anything that that team can come back with, any changes that would make you change your mind on a veto? Uh, so it's coming back in September. That's the scheduled plan. Uh, my uh, planners are telling me that uh, they don't see a need for this. It's all about need, and that's why we have a community development master plan. Uh, we have ample space for warehouses outside of this area, which is outside the urban development boundary. It puts our watershed at risk, our bay at risk. It's uh, potentially an area that we're going to need for Everglades restoration. It compromises our infrastructure. Uh, it, 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 we, we, we're building good transit to get people to jobs. Uh, so overall, there is no demonstrated need. I'm really not sure what could be done to, to override that at, at this time. Okay, uh, Madam Mayor, great to speak with you as always. We will follow the budget process. It's gonna go on through public hearings in August and then before yes. the commission in September. And uh, we'll see how far your proposal goes. Thanks, Mayor. Thank Thanks you very so much. All right, Parkland Father Manny Oliver was at the White House this week for the signing of a new gun safety bill. He took those at that ceremony by surprise with what he had to say, and he is with us live next. Since his son, Joaquin, was murdered at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High, Four years ago, many Oliver has been on a crusade against gun violence. As have so many Parkland families. And this week, Oliver was among them at the White House for President Biden's ceremony, marking the first bipartisan gun safety legislation in 30 years. For Oliver, though, a moment to go off script. Today's many things is proof that despite the naysayers, we can make meaningful progress on dealing with gun violence. Because make no mistake, sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. If you think you. I've been to tell you this for years. Let me finish my comment. Let him talk. Let him talk. Manuel Oliver, Joaquin's dad, is with us today to talk about all of that on this day, incidentally, before the sentencing case starts for the young man responsible for that mass murder at Douglas High. Manny Oliver, great to have you with us. Manny, good morning. We're glad that you are here. So what did you accomplish? You stood up and you said there's nothing to celebrate. It's a lie. This bill, the first one to pass Congress in a, you know, a decade, more three decades. What did you accomplish? 
Well, I think that um, you can hear the people behind me um, clapping after I was asking President Biden for the third time um, to open a, an office in the White House that will um, just make sure that gun violence is a priority. Um, we mentioned this before in, in a meeting to his um, some of his uh, members of, of his team, including Susan Rice, and um, it was ignored. We sent a letter a week before, and I saw an opportunity to do that. Now, let me tell you, um, you don't achieve things by individual actions. Um, it's an addition of actions, not only like that one. We, we do many things. Um, so this is only one more thing that we did. We will hold accountable and call out anything that we think is not working or is not going in the right direction. Yeah, you know, you, so many of the Parkland families, and we've had so many with us on this program, have done so much, have been so engaged to leave legacies for your sons and daughters and uh, husbands. Uh, you know, most of the, of the parents that we've spoken to are, they've become involved in politics and school boards and lobbying and crafting laws and, and getting them passed. And you've taken such a different route. Was that what you did? Was that planned? Was that spontaneous? And, and what, what did you think about these sort of unorthodox things that you have been doing as an artist, as an activist? Do you feel like you are making progress? Um, I, I like to think that I am. Um, I, I also like to think that uh, part of what we have done um, is been connecting very well with the with the young Americans. Hmm. Um, I am not um, um, exclusively fighting against shootings in schools. I respect that, uh, but we all know that this is something that is hitting us in every single corner of our nation, outside of the schools. This is beyond Portland, and this is beyond Joaquin. Um, what I did in the White House is just another thing that I did, and I will do it again, by the way, uh, if I think that at some point you need to not accept something that is only going to work halfway. We all know, know it, and, and, and they know it, and President Biden knows it. Yeah. This is uh, a group of bills that will they'd have a certain amount of succeeding uh, because we decided to put it that way. I have to fight against that. You, you you will never try to launch a rocket to the moon that it would only reach halfway. So um, that's my point. We need to do better. And I'm not willing to wait another 30 years to have a ban of assault weapons and, and to do the things that President Biden asked these group of legislators to do. Yeah. Uh, Manny Oliver, let me just say, uh, we admire your utter dedication to this cause and you are not going to be deterred by manners or courtesy. I mean, there were some Parkland parents who thought it was discourteous for you to get up, you know, and speak. And you said, you know, this is a moment to draw attention to it. Now, you have had a conversation, a private conversation, have you not, with President Biden? Tell us about that. I had a visit to the um, Oval Office, which is very different than having a conversation. Um, so I wouldn't count that as a, as a meeting. Uh, we were there. We spent a couple of mi minutes with uh, President Biden. He's a nice guy. By the way, I voted for President Biden. Um, but I, I don't need to follow everything uh, just because there's a political inclination or a color that I might be identifying more than the other. 
Um, that's my difference between uh, the different, the main difference between how we react, Patricia and myself, and the whole movement that Joaquin is leading, and other movements. So, but I respect what everyone is doing. I just, if I see a, a moment that requires me to call out, I, I again, I'll do it again. Manny, tomorrow, Monday, at least uh, the scheduling as such, after months and months of jury selection, the case, uh, the sentencing phase is about to begin against the young man responsible for mass murder. Um, will you will you be there in that Broward courtroom? Um, I, I won't be there tomorrow um, because I, I, I have COVID, so I, I can't be there, and Patricia has it too. Um, but I... I I will be there um, at some point. I, I, I can tell you something. I'm not changing any plan from what we do. We work every single day on, on trying to prevent gun violence from happening. So well, I think that the point that I want to make is that I'm not changing anything from our schedule to be there. Uh, what we do is important, but we do it's a, a part of the solution. And, and I don't have any anything that will um, allow me or, or, or I don't think it's fair with Joaquin that we stop uh, our plans and movements and actions just to be in that room. Let me, let me, ask, it, let me ask you this way then, understood. Um, you know, the, the jurors are not supposed to be watching television or going onto the internet, so I feel fairly free in asking you, what, what would you say to that jury would you what do you want to see life without parole or would you like to see him put to death i think um he should die um and i think that um that is not enough uh because whatever that jury decides at the end it won't be in any level close to the suffering that that joaquin and the other 16 had to go through that day so if if there was a chance that this uh, murder uh, will receive a death penalty that will imply him running around a school with a lot of kids screaming and, and, and bleeding out and falling in the floor and the smoke, and then he gets shot four times like my kid did, uh, and then 10 hours later they will uh, let their family know, uh, that will be more fair. So not even the death penalty is enough, I think we should make make a precedent here, mark a precedent here, uh, by by giving this uh, murder uh, killer of my son um, the death penalty without any doubt. Yeah, Manny Oliver, we wish you well and your wife Patricia. Uh, now get over COVID and uh, and for the future and trying to cope with the unspeakable loss of your son Joaquin. We are grateful for your time and your passion. Thanks. Thank Thanks you very you. much. You're welcome. Up next, the southernmost state lawmaker. Representative Jim Mooney is going to join us with a view from the Keys on some of the state's most contentious issues. to the Capitol. The state rep who represents Monroe County not only has the longest drive to Tallahassee, but some of the most fragile territory in Florida. The Keys environmental and development issues did not make the headlines this session like they did in the past, and abortion and education issues were preeminent in Tallahassee. 
Republican State Representative Jim Mooney has finished his first term. He's running for yet another, and there he is joining us now from Alamorada. Representative Mooney, great to see you. Great to see you. I'm, I'm actually I'm actually joining you from Hypoluxo, Florida. My uh, okay. my mother's 91st birthday, so I'm at my daughter's house and my son-in-law's house. Wow. Oh, well, happy birthday to Mama Mooney, first and foremost. Yeah. Thank you. She's she's out she's out with the great her great grandchildren. I should say. I say my grandbabies, but she's she's out she's out there hanging out. <laughs> Wonderful. So this is your your first time joining our program. We um, we're so happy to see you. And um, I want to start out with, you know, Michael mentioned some of the contentious issues. We have state reps here almost every weekend talking about those, the big ones uh, right now still in court, the more restrictive abortion law that Florida now has. Um, you, you voted for that, as did every GOP rep and senator. I, um, I also want to bring up, though, you, you voted against an amendment floated to make an exemption for crime victims, people impregnated by rape or, or incest. We're watching that in the Midwest with a young girl right now. I'm curious why that exemption wouldn't be something that you could vote for. Well, I, I, you know, I, I will tell you that I struggled greatly with this bill early on. Uh, I, I did just... I, dug deep into it and I do apologize for my tire by the way um, so I dug deep into the bill I, I dug deep into abortion issues across the across the country and, and actually around the world and and at the end of the day I, I, I asked a lot of questions to some people who are probably smarter than myself and I felt comfortable that given given a number of circumstances you could still get an abortion after 15 weeks and I think that that's uh, the reason I I voted for it. I, it wasn't that I thought it was a horrible amendment, um, but um, I, I felt comfortable that if, if you're put in a position of that of, in that place, then um, the reality of it is, I still believe if, if you need to get an abortion after 15 weeks, you can get that done in Florida. You know, there there is no abortion provider in Monroe County. Should there be with these new restrictions? Uh, you, you know, uh, I, I I wouldn't say there should be because the uh, the unfortunate part of medical care in Monroe County anyway is, is that we're, we don't have a lot of things in Monroe County that probably should be there. We just don't have the population base to actually make any one thing supportive. I mean, if you have a heart attack, you're going to get airlifted out or ambulance stop. You have brain surgery. So a lot of things are going to the mainland on a daily basis in all realms of the medical world. Um, I, I don't say that there shouldn't be something there. I just think that the, probably the, the reality of it is, um, Gosh, and I hate to say this, but there's probably just, you know, these doctors need to make money, whether we like what they do or not, doesn't matter. Uh, but, you know, we, we don't have brain surgeons in the Keys. We don't have any of that in the Keys. So everything comes to the plan. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest single reason. Yeah. I, thought it's not, I don't think about should or shouldn't be. I think it's just the reality of it. It's just, yeah. it's just yeah. big enough. Yeah. We're, 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 you know, for as much, as much people that come to the Keys, we're extremely rural when you think about it. Uh, Representative Mooney, you did vote, I know, against the Parental Rights and Education Bill, the correct title for the bill, which its critics call Don't Say Gay. What were your reasons for voting against that? Uh, the 1557 bill, while the premise is certainly no one disagrees with the premise, I think if you set everybody down inside the house, you would. no one wants anything to be taught that's not, it's not appropriate to be taught. I think the some of the issues I had with that were the age appropriate. Um, so what is age appropriate? Well, what's age appropriate for how I taught my children? 
about the body. So I have, you know, I taught education. I have a physical education teacher. I had a lot of physiology classes and all that stuff at the University of Miami. Uh, so I, I taught my kids really scientific terms. Uh, some some parents may not like scientific terms, and I found the term uh, age of age appropriate to be a little misleading. Uh, if you take somebody like myself, who was the youngest in the class, so I'm in fourth grade, probably should have still been in third grade. The cutoff point between third and and fourth, I, I don't see there's that much difference. I also the Department of Education doesn't have anything in the curriculum that these school boards draw from that teaches anything like this to begin with, any kind of sex education K through three. Uh, there was an issue with the charter schools. They're funded by state, you know, our, our tax dollars, and yet they weren't specifically mentioned in there. And I learned a long time ago with ordinances that um, when you write an ordinance, you need to be very specific as to how it applies. And if you don't, um, they'll always find a gray area. So I had a problem with our tax dollars not being equally spread across as far as the bill goes. So when you have a parent that has a child in charter school and they think they're protected, if that's what they feel they need to be, and they're not, at least according to, it's not defendants been the bill. The answer was it's, it's not in there, but it could be in there. And so that wasn't working for me. And, I, you know, I'm being a former educator. I think that um, there are some areas within the bill itself where you put teachers in a very precarious position of how to deal with what these kids tell you in your realm as a teacher. And to have to say that I'm prudent enough to know if that child may have something bad happen to them when they get home. And I say, listen, your, your son or daughter would like to have a sex change or whatever that may be. Um, you end up just too great an area. And I just feel like the lawsuits are gonna run rampant. And then you know what, let me, bottom I, I line don't, is- I don't mean, to, I don't mean to interrupt. I just wanna, I wanna get like one no more issue in before we wanna, what was really interesting is you were actually one of seven who bucked the GOP party line on that one. And, and half of those reps were from South Florida. So that, that was kind of interesting. But um, Representative, you had sponsored a bill to exempt Key West building restrictions to get some affordable housing built for the sheriff's office. We were talking to Miami-Dade's mayor earlier. You may have heard about affordable housing. That How did you do that? And could that be a blueprint maybe for other affordable housing, especially for law enforcement or teachers, something like that? I, yeah, yeah, I, I think it could be a, a blueprint. We, you know, in, in Monroe County, we have a rate of growth ordinance. And as you probably are well aware of, in 2023, there will be no, no more new permits issued in Monroe County. So sort of what you see is what you get. Um, so to go outside of the ROGO allocation, the city of Key West and the sheriff's office uh, did an interlocal agreement that the city of Key West would build, or the, the a, just a builder would build, but in the city of Key West, up to 50 affordable housing units. I do believe it's cut at 24 right now is the, is the plan, I believe. I haven't seen the plans themselves, but we had to go outside of Rugwood. There's a state statute that does allow for first responder uh, buildings outside of other ordinances and, and, and statutes. So yeah, I, I do believe that anybody in the state of Florida has the ability to go around it. For us, it was a matter of going outside the rate of growth ordinance and the number of allocations. So we would have had to pull workforce housing units out of one section given to the sheriff's office okay. and we said well that's not going to be good because that's just going to cut somebody else yeah. off representative mooney i'm going to have to i beg your pardon i'm going to have to cut in here we are out of time great, great to speak with you and you know keep up the uh, protection of the great florida keys <laughs> i love where i live that's the bottom line <laughs> thanks so much thank you thank up next a clear sign of south florida's inflation struggles are the growing food lines but the warehouses that supply them are stretched thin. An inside look when we come back.
Well, we all know times are tough. Just this week, it was announced inflation hit 9.1%, the highest in about 41 years. Food banks already stretched thin from COVID losses now face the same supply chain issues that are feeding inflation when it comes to those food lines. That's something that the president and CEO of FarmShare is grappling with right now. Stephen Shelley joins us live from FarmShare's warehouse in Homestead. Great to have you aboard, Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Perfect. Thank you very much for having me. We are glad you were here. So um, is your organization, I mean, we are running stories every week showing your staffers putting boxes of food and cars, people lined up for a, a mile or two to get it. Uh, how are you holding up? You know, we're doing the best we can given the supply of food that we currently have access to. Uh, as you mentioned, the demand has continued to increase, you know, pre-pandemic. We were probably, you know, somewhere around four or five million pounds of food going out statewide. Uh, that, you know, almost quadrupled during the peak of the pandemic, settled down a little bit, uh, but now we're back up to approximately two times what normal uh, food demand would look like. Uh, but unfortunately, the supply is not there. The supply is pre-pandemic or lower uh, due to cuts in federal programmings and supply chain issues, as was mentioned, uh, that has made access to that difficult for us. So you have this large gap between the demand of people that now need food because of inflationary pressures and the supply of food that's available for food banks like FarmShare to be able to distribute to those hungry people. So it sounds like you're going through, FarmShare is going through what everybody, every store is going through. Take take our viewers through, how, where does it come from? I mean, is it a donation base? Do you buy the food? What, what are, mm -hmm. take us through the, the practicalities of this. So food banks at large scale like we are, which is regional or statewide hub, we get food from both the federal government through what's called the Emergency Food Assistance Program. Uh, that's probably the largest quantity of food that comes into large scale food banks like FarmShare. We also then receive products from say local grocery stores, wholesalers, importers, uh, various other sources in the private sector that also supplement those federal food programs. And one of the problems we're running into right now is that a lot of the federal programs that were created both pre-pandemic, but also during the pandemic, to meet that unprecedented need for hunger and for food uh, have all expired at this point. Uh, and we're now going back to those pre-pandemic food levels and including the, the Farmers to Family Food Box program, which injected tens of millions of pounds of food into the state of Florida uh, during that time period. And so as a result, it's kind of the perfect storm where the federal programs have ended, the supply chains have made it where your local suppliers and, and private suppliers are not able to, to give that food to food banks. You know, as you and I know, you go to the grocery store, you can't find the, the products that you need, which means there's not enough excess uh, available for them to then make those donations to the food banks. So as a result, all of that uh, compounds to mean that we don't have access to the food that we need. And I have more empty warehouses than I have full warehouses now. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, looking forward, I mean, I don't know how many thousands of people uh, FarmShare serves every week, but it's a huge number of people. Uh, can you give them some confidence that you are going to be there and have whatever foods you can get your hands on to distribute? Yes, uh, my, I and my staff are working as, as, as diligently as possible to find new sources of food products. You know, thank you for you guys for bringing attention to this issue. We're hoping that the federal government, you know, is one of the main ways in which they can step in and kind of solve this problem quickly in the short term. We're hoping that they listen and can help also um, plug that gap and so advocacy in that respect as well. And just like during the pandemic with food banks like FarmShare and others, uh, we're there to help those who are hungry. We're gonna do everything we possibly can do and work day in and day out to find that food supply and get whatever food we do have access to in the hands of the people who are hungry right now. 
Stephen Shelley, the Clarion Call is now out on Local 10, and we appreciate your time. Thanks so much for being Thanks, with Stephen. us. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you very much. Great work. We'll All right, be we'll right be, back. Yeah, and we'll what be right back. What he said. <laughs> We are counting down to the primary election. It comes up August 23rd. We sure you want to vote, but are you registered? Over the last few years, we've uncovered some schemes to manip manip manipulate your vote. That's it. And tonight, we're going to take a look at our investigations and give you the tools to protect yourself and your vote. Here's a preview of our special tonight. We do not understand how her political party was changed. They don't want to do anything. I don't sign anything, but they give me the part. A switch scandal. Hi, looking for Alexis Rodriguez. Yeah, Alex is in here. A shill scheme. We are alleging that November's Florida Senate District 37 election involved crimes. These payments were intended to influence the outcome of the election. Efforts to confuse you. We're going to do another package of election integrity reforms. Now, new laws. We are adamant about overcoming those obstacles. It's our responsibility to make it convenient for the voters. New steps heading into a midterm election. All election cycles are important. Our voters continue to be more engaged with each year. Cutting down the confusion. You may be seeing new races, new candidates on your ballot. We are going to give you everything you need to make it count. Set your clock. You can watch Make It Count right here on Local 10 tonight at 7.30. Before we go today, we want to say congratulations to the Broward Teacher of the Year, Seema Niak. She is a fourth grade teacher at Eagle Ridge Elementary School in Coral Springs. She was one of the five top finalists in the state of Florida, and she was honored at a gala on Thursday. She has two engineering degrees, uses her scientific expertise to incorporate robotics into her lessons. Boy, love to be in her class. So we say congratulations, Seema, for your teaching skills and all your accomplishments. Always remember your best teachers. All right, to rewatch today's interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast, scan this QR code right there with your phone. It'll take you right to the This Week in South Florida section of local10.com. And as always, we thank you so much for your time, for being with us here. And remember, we're online 24-7. And as always, remember, stay informed, get involved. Have a great Sunday.